from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life, our conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our, our broken society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host in our eighth year on air in the show. I started the Work-Life Integration Project at the Wharton School in the Leadership Program. My name is Stu Friedman, and I'm so glad you're with us today. If you want to find out what I'm up to these days, I run a small company. It's a consulting and training company called Total Leadership. You can learn all about what we do there and lots of free resources, book chapters, videos, assessment tools at totalleadership.org. It's all about finding harmony among the different parts of life. And we've got some useful tools and practical knowledge to help you, your organization, do that. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. My guest today is... Uh, someone who I met in a class I was taking at the University of Pennsylvania last semester. We met on Zoom because she was gracious enough to visit our class. She's a writer who has published three award-winning short story collections. She has an enormous volume of short stories that have won many, many, many prizes, far too many for me to list. She's also a professor, teaches uh, creative writing. I am delighted to introduce Dr. Amina Gautier, who is an associate professor in the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Miami. Amina, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu, for having me. Such a pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. Let me tell listeners a little bit more about you before we get into our conversation. Amina Gautier is a graduate of Stanford University and the University of Pennsylvania. So she is a, an alum a distinguished alum of our great university. She's taught at Penn as well as at Marquette, St. Joe's, Washington University in St. Louis, and DePaul University. As I mentioned a moment ago, she's written three award-winning short story collections, including Now We Will Be Happy, which is the one that I read for the class I was taking last semester, and it's the one we're going to focus on in this conversation today. She's written... Uh, as, as of the last time I looked, 125 short stories, that could, be, that could be not the total. She will correct me momentarily. I'm just going to list a couple of the awards she's won. The Crazy Horse Prize, the Donahue Fiction Prize, the Jack Dyer Prize, the William Ritchie Prize, the Shafley Microfiction Award, the Lamar York Prize in Fiction. I could go on. She's also received grants from the Illinois Arts Council and the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. She is a Brooklyn-born native New Yorker. So we share that. Uh, and I grew up in Brooklyn too, but many years prior to Amina, she probably left, I probably left Brooklyn way before she was born. Um, but my, my mother is from her old neighborhood. We're going to talk perhaps a little bit more about that. Uh, and she now divides her time, as I understand it, between Chicago and Miami. Uh, that that may be different now, um, but that's the latest information I have about her location. Um, I mean, you're the author of uh, numerous award-winning uh, short story collections, and that's really where you focus is on short stories as opposed to novels, for example. And we talked a little bit about that in, our, in the class session that you visited. Uh, you, you've also won, I have to mention, the Penn Malamud, Alumna, uh, Malamud Award for Excellence in the Short Story in 2018, becoming the first African-American woman to win this prestigious award. You've, uh, you, your, your presence in our class, so I was taking a course uh, last semester with Professor Herman Beavers, who is a distinguished professor in the English department here at Penn. The course was on the African-American short story and we read, oh, 100 short stories over the course of the semester. And we finished with uh, a couple of short story collections from contemporary writers. And one of those was you. Uh, and when you came to class, you dazzled us uh, with your easy wit. And it was just so much fun to talk with you. 
and so I thought I would reach out and and ask you to speak with me today. And I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to do that, because um, you know on this show we we focus largely on uh, people in different kinds of work settings, but primarily it's in industry, you know, technology, manufacturing, retail, finance. We don't talk often enough about people who do creative work, um, your life. And so we have an opportunity in this conversation to examine and learn from the career of a distinguished writer, still quite young, um, about how to understand the relationship between work and the rest of life and how to create harmony among the different parts for someone who does creative work. So once again, thank you for being here. Let me start by asking you about, um, about your background. Uh, so what was it like growing up in Brooklyn whenever that was, however many years ago? Well, that's not a complicated question, so I can certainly answer it. But first, you said I should correct you about my number of stories. So when I turned in the information last week, mm. I was at 125 stories accepted, not written. I've written way more than that. And as of today, I'm at 129. I just got two acceptances yesterday. So the num And I had a few more before that. So the number keeps growing, which is great. Now, what was it like growing up in Brooklyn? Yes. Thank you. So your readers can't see me, but I'm older than I look. I'm the same age as Star Wars. So, you know, born in 1977, which means that I grew up in Brooklyn during the 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, anyone who knows about urban areas or especially New York, you know, that is Mayor Koch's New York, um, followed by Mayor David Dickens. It is, you know, the New York that was going through the crack epidemic, the AIDS epidemic, the drug wars, um, the uh, New York in which the, many of the boroughs were blighted. Mm -hmm. So what was it like growing in, in Brooklyn? Well, so I was born in Bed-Stuy, the son of a sharecropper. No, I'm joking about that part. I was born <laughs> in Bed-Stuy um, and we moved pretty quickly out of um, the neighborhood in which like three generations of my family had lived because we became prey to predatory rental practices. So like by the age of one, I had already been like, victimized by um, in housing in, in Brooklyn. And um, we had a landlord who pretty much wanted to raise the rent, wanted to get the people out. He cut all the heat off um, until people started moving out of the buildings, right? People talk about gentrification in New York as if it's something that started in the 90s or, you know, in the aughts. Um, but it obviously had been going on for you know, many decades before that, right? This was the sort of beginning of the gentrification of, of Bed-Stuy, right? These rental schemes. Um, so everybody on the block, you know, all black and brown people had to disperse who's going to stay in an apartment building in Brooklyn in the winter with no heat and so then he went to court and they made him sell the building and he sold it to his brother for a dollar <laughs> and then raised the rent and brought in the people he wanted so um, basically my family scattered some people went to Canarsie some people went to Brownsville. Some people went to East New York, and I ended up. These are all these are all neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I'm just clarifying for our national audience, some of whom don't know where Canarsie is. Please continue, Amina. You take the L train to get to Canarsie if you need to know. Um, but so we we all ended up scattered, which really affected my family's life, and which I think was the beginning of my need to write stories, right? To wow. gather information and feel um, a way to reconnect something that had been disconnected or or dispersed. So I uh, personally ended up growing up in two neighborhoods at the same time. My mother and my grandmother and my uncles ended up in the projects in East New York on Pickin Avenue. Um, and my grandmother's sister, my great-grandmother, ended up in uh, the Marcus Garvey housing projects in Brownsville and you know you're like well what's the difference between projects they're all projects but some projects are a little better a little safer um than other ones so I was living in East New York and then my family decided that the school district 
which is District 23, was better in Brownsville. So they, you know, sent me to live um, with my great aunt and with my great and my great grandmother during the week so that I could go to uh, the public schools in that neighborhood. And then I would come home on the weekends. So I've been so it's not a big deal for me to be living in multiple places now because I've been doing Mm. that since the since the age of five. Um, Mm. So I I I don't want to rattle on, but I'm not sure um, how much more I should say about answering your question. But I'll just say that, um, you know, I went to public schools and, um, you know, New York has the IGC program, Intelligent Intelligent Gifted Children. Um, They give you aptitude test. There's a program called Prep for Prep, which was founded in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Simon as a way to identify and target and nurture um, at-risk, inner city, marginalized, underprivileged, whatever word you want to use. We were using all of those words mm-hmm. um, to identify those kids um, who had the scholarly aptitude, but perhaps not the socioeconomic circumstances um, to be able to compete at higher academic levels. So um, in New York City, the test is given at all the public schools, like there's no choice, right? They just, they distribute the test in fifth grade and whoever passes, um, there's a battery of tests that lasts for about four or five months. Whoever passes gets the opportunity to participate in an enrichment program for mm-hmm. months, two summers, and then Wednesdays and Saturdays during the school year. And mm-hmm. if you don't fail out, you earn a scholarship to attend a, a private school in one of the five boroughs from seventh grade through uh, through 12th grade. So I took that test in fifth yeah. grade, PS 183. I was the only person in the school to pass that year. Um, wow. and I made it into prep for prep, you know, and of course that has a lot to do with where I am now, but you're asking me, what was Brooklyn like? Well, it was not fun to All be right. Hang on, what, let me just bus. remind, I want to hear more about what was, about what not, was fun not fun about it, about it how you got, how you got to, to uh, uh, Northfield Mount Hermon, and then to Stanford and, and Penn, uh, but let me just remind listeners, this is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, I'm speaking with Dr. Amina Gautier, an award-winning writer who teaches in the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Miami, and he's the author of uh, among other short story collections, Now We Will Be Happy, uh, which we're going to hear the author read from uh, before we're done here. So when you say it wasn't fun, Amina, what do you mean? Well, you know, I I don't live in New York anymore, but Brooklyn is always in my heart and there's no place that I'd prefer more. So I still, you know, get a big kick out of getting a real slice of pizza that you can fold and the grease drips down the tip. I love Italian. <laughs> I love to sit on curbs and stoops. I love the little, oh, man. The, you know, the rain and the oil make around the curbs where the cars pass. Like I love, Oh wow. you know, I think graffiti is beautiful and New York is in my heart and it's Me a too. Blood. But instead of being able to enjoy all those things, in the, mm. all of a sudden, someone who is supposed to, who the neighborhood thinks is super smart, is seen getting on the long yellow bus in the summer. And you know that identifies kids as people who need summer school or who, who need remedial education. So that's fun, right? Being did, did you get a lot of shit for that, for being on the, the long yellow bus? That's how I learned how to fight, Stu, you know what I mean? That's really? On and popping. What did they? Oh, you know, you know, when you're smart, sometimes you have to fight uh, because you get targeted. Yeah. Well, what'd they say to you? Um, you know, people would doubt that it was because I was smart. You know, they would use the R word, retard, um, different oh. things like that. Um, any, you know, a lot of times when you're in a, a a neighborhood that's homogenous and you don't go along with the crowd, you get identified in in certain ways or or targeted. But you know, that is the that's the price of uh, growth and, mm. and, and improvement. But I'm just saying, you know, that adolescent period in Brooklyn, you know, say 1987 through 1992, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't fun. All of a sudden, you couldn't go to the beach anymore. Rockaway and Coney Island were full of syringes and medical waste. Remember all that? You know, wow. 
finally got to the age where I was old enough to ride the train by myself to go downtown to go to the movie theater, the Duffield, the Metropolitan. And um, I think it was 1991 or 1992, uh, 90 or 91, shortly after New Jack City came out, the Duffield got shot up and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the movie theater was closed. It's never been reopened. It was, you know, a time where you are young and flowering and everything around you is being shuttered and shut down or, or discontinued. Mm-hmm. I mean, about... Um, it not being fun, like Brooklyn was becoming more and more dangerous just at the time that I was becoming an adolescent, right? Like mm. Raleigh, that happened, I think when I was in fourth grade, um, all of a sudden the streets weren't safe, right? Like all of a sudden- Wait, what is it that happened that you, you broke out there for a second? I'm sorry, the Tawana Brawley incident? Yeah, describe was, um, describe in, in a sentence or two what that was. So uh, a young girl named Tawana Brawley was believed to have been found in a garbage can with racial slurs um, written across her, her, a garbage dumpster, excuse me, with racial slurs written across her body and Reverend Al Sharpton and other, um, other Brooklyn activists and leaders took up the cause um, to defend her. Um, it came out later that that, that incident was, Uh, most likely fabricated, but it was a signal to, you know, adults and parents in the neighborhoods that the neighborhoods that they had grown up in and where they used to believe everyone knew each other and everyone watched each other, that these neighborhoods were becoming increasingly less safe. You know, Steph Hawkins, that happened when I was a kid as well, you know. So so there was a lot of kind of shattering of, of, of what you would want in terms of a, a safe and, and beneficent, you know, loving, caring environment to grow up in. And I'm struck by what you said earlier about how you're living in different places and now describing more about, you know, how things were taken from you, you know, opportunities to live in a, in a free way, you know, especially as you're just emerging as, as a person um, that your writing is a, is in some ways a, 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 um, a means for you to reconnect. Could you say more about, about that and how you came to be a writer? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I do think of myself as an intelligent person, but it took me many, many, many years <laughs> to realize that even though I wanted to be a writer, that it was something I could do as a profession. Mm-hmm. I always knew that I wanted to write. I was just writing all the time. Like, you know, when we would finish the cereal or take the cereal box, turn it inside out, like right across the cereal box, take the bills, you know, that the, um, the outside envelopes that my parents would have and you know, write on the envelopes, just write on anything that I could. But, you know, you, you, well, I went to, went in, I was in an education system where you read mostly British books. So you're reading about all these characters, you know, teenagers and kids who want to write but they write something, they send it to a, a newspaper and all of a sudden they're, they're writers, but they still have other lives and careers. So I thought I had to be a writer and something else, like a writer, ice skater, a writer, veterinarian. Um, and it wasn't until I got to stand- Wait, wait, why, why did you think you had to be a, an ice skater or a veterinarian in addition to writing? Why wasn't it legit to be a writer? What was, it that, what was the model that you had in your head that compelled you to think that you couldn't do that as your central occupation? The models I had in my head were 19th century novels um, that they were having us read, right, in uh, min- middle school and, and high school. So you think of like Joe from Little Woman, uh, you know, writing her stories, but basically being a full-time tutor. Mm-hmm governess or you think of uh you know characters in different charles dickens stories with people where they're writing stories but they have other lives um and other careers you hear Chekhov being a, a medical doctor william close williams right you hear about these 19th century and early 20th century writers writing but having other professions nella larson for example being a nurse uh, mm-hmm. that's okay so that's what you thought you had to do yeah um, so, you know, I didn't even think about focusing on or majoring in creative writing until um, the end of my freshman year at Stanford. I went there to study film, um, which was in the communications department at, uh, at that university, because I thought I was going to be writing like movies. Um, mm-hmm. 
and a film teacher kind of set me straight and he said, you know, any idiot can, you know, stand behind a camera and shoot. Ooh, how to okay. tell the story first. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it was, he wasn't, he, it sounds like a diss, but he was basically um, helping me to prioritize the idea of storytelling and mm. content over, you know, composition or, or special effects or things like that. I see. Um, he, he suggested that I take a creative writing course, um, which I did. And that was the end of that. And I never looked back. Well, what happened in the creative writing course that changed your life? Oh, now you asked the wrong question. <laughs> I was going to try to like, skip over this information. But I had a, 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 a bad life-altering experience, but it turned out for the good. So at Stanford, the creative writing classes were lottery-based. You kind of had to just take whatever they would give you. And I thought I was a poet, you know, don't laugh. I really, you know, I'm a, clearly a fiction writer, but back then I just, I thought I was a, a poet. I'd be writing all these poems and um, as a child and teachers were getting them, putting them into contests. I was winning all these district-wide contests. So I, and getting savings, I thought I was a poet. So they put me in the fiction workshop and um, my instructors, uh, my instructors shared an office with a, a poetry instructor so I would go to both office hours, my instructor's office hours, and then I would go to the poet's ones. And I, I thought I was totally going to like wow and dazzle him. I brought him some of my poems and I was like, let's sit down and talk like poet to poet. I was like, mm-hmm. a poet, you know, like, you this know. This at Stanford now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, I'm like 19 um, and incredibly foolish and ignorant at this moment. So I'm like, yeah, you know, let's have a tete-a-tete, poet to poet. I show him some of my poetry. And he totally smacked me down and completely dissed me. He gets up, he goes to his uh, bookshelf and he pulls out uh, Derek Walcott. He pulls out um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and he pulls out uh, Robert Hayden, Those Winter Sundays. And he lays these poems out in front of me and he goes, now that's poetry. Oh! Out of his office. <laughs> wow! Well, was he trying to help you? Uh, I don't think it didn't, it didn't feel that way. That that's all I can say is I, I, you know, crawled out of there, my tail between my legs, feeling very downtrodden. Um, but it actually helped me realize that I really truly was a fiction writer because when he said that I just gave up, you know, I didn't argue with him. You know, I didn't, you know, go try to write better poems. I was like, Oh, well, I guess I'm not a poet. And I'd only been in the fiction workshop for a quarter, you know, maybe Hmm. eight weeks. And I already knew that if that had happened with my fiction instructor, like if I showed him my story and he pulls out like Flannery O'Connor or James Baldwin, it's like mm-hmm. that's a short story. I would have like gone home. I would have stayed up all night. You know, I would have revised one of my stories or written a better one. And then I would have come back to his office the next day and I would have shoved it down his throat and made him eat it. You know, so I knew like, okay, I'm actually a fiction writer. So you were ready, you were ready to fight for your fiction, but not for your poetry. Is that right? Yes. So what was it about the form of fiction that you discovered? All right, this, this is, this is something to die for. You know, um, I don't think I could have articulated what it was then. It was probably a gut feeling But what I can say now is that I think I've actually just really been a fiction writer all along my whole entire life because everything looks like a short story or a a narrative to me. And I mean, like, like everything, like when I listen to music, like R&B, all I hear are short stories. You know, I listen to, you know, Just My Imagination by The Temptations or Luther Vandross song. I'm like, this is just a short story, but they broke the lines and made it look like music, you know, like Mm. I. All I, everything is, is, is a short story to me. Um, and I think that's what made me willing to, well, and what still makes me, you know, willing to go to the carpet or, you know, go to the mattresses, you know, and, and defend, um, defend fiction. Because that's just the way you see the world. And, and, and so you must have had some further encouragement from that fiction workshop uh, instructor, Am, am I guessing correctly? Oh yeah, I um, I, I I think that he was originally like 
uh, flattered that I was so interested. And I think that by the end of the quarter, he was really annoyed and was hoping that I would fall into a hole somewhere. Um, you know, in most creative writing workshops, you turn in two stories um, and, and a revision. But I had so many more stories to write and so many more stories to tell. And I would just like write a new story every week and like harass him um, <laughs> to read them. So I think I actually had to read eight to 10 stories when he was only supposed to read two and then from there it just it just took off I had so many stories in my head and I finally found the right format um to execute them and, and give them life that they weren't poems they weren't essays they weren't songs they were short stories hmm. were you thinking of writing songs too Oh yeah, I used to I used to write songs before I started writing poems. I wrote raps. I, I wrote anything that I could think of. I wrote one act plays, um, and all of those things were okay. But nothing clicked until I took the same material and reworked it into fiction. And then you know I was like, oh no, this is this is where it is. Like this is what's up. Mm-hmm. All right. Um- I mean, this is, I've got so many more questions to ask, uh, and I know our listeners are going to be interested in. We need to take a short break here. Please don't go away. Folks, when we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Dr. Amina Gartier, author of Now We Will Be Happy and other short story collections. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Amina Gartier, who is an associate professor in the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Miami. She's an award-winning writer whose book of short stories, Now We Will Be Happy, was one of the books that we read in a class that I took at the University of Pennsylvania with Professor Herman Beavers, who we really should talk about, Amina. Uh, the, the course was the, the African-American short story. Um, so you, you saw yourself as a short story writer and you had, you had a couple of professors, one of whom kicked your butt and said, no, you're not a poet. And the other one who you just would not stop harassing until they helped you become a better short story writer when you were 19 at Stanford. Um, <clears throat> So can you fast forward us through the rest of your experience as an undergrad and how you got to the University of Pennsylvania and what you're doing now? Okay, that's a tall I know, it's a order. lot. I, a lot. Um, so again, like I said, I didn't know that I could just do creative writing and nothing else. So I was like, well, I got to get a job. Um, and there was a Mellon program, which they also have at at Penn, which encourages undergraduate minorities to consider PhDs in the humanities, um, and they help portions of your loans. So again, you know, I am a black girl from Brooklyn. Yeah, I went to boarding school, but you know, on scholarship. So I'm thinking I need to find something that is going to pay the bills, something that is going to be secure, and something that's going to not cost me any money. So it was like MFA program where I'd have to take out a bunch of loans or PhD program where they would pay me. And that's how I got to Penn. I figured that if I'm going to be a fiction writer, there's nothing wrong with spending six years reading and studying literature deeply, critically and intensively. And that at the end, you know, if I hadn't published any fiction, I would still be a, a scholar. And I thought it was very important that if I wanted to write and publish literature, that I also needed to understand it from a critical standpoint and from a historical standpoint and to have all the context that I needed to know where I would fit within the context of African-American literature. That's how the PhD in literature and the creative writing fused fused together. And then um, all of my jobs have been ones where I was originally asked to do a sort of 50-50 to teach you know, African-American literature or American literature and creative writing, mm-hmm. I think um, most people are aware that English is a declining field of study mm-hmm. in the 21st century and creative writing, however, is not. So fewer students are interested in taking courses on Beowulf and Chaucer 
um, and are still wanting to take creative writing courses. So all of my sort of 50 jobs moved over to becoming completely or fully creative writing. I see. Um, so, so that's where I am. Uh, that's where I am now teaching, um, teaching primarily creative writing, but still publishing, uh, still, still publishing in my field of 19th century African-American literature, just had an article come out on Ben Franklin and Frederick Douglass. So I'm still very much um, mm. active as a scholar and, mm. and I'm unable to sort of separate the two. Hmm. So uh, are you more like the poetry professor or the creative writing professor uh, when you were 19 with your students now? I am neither, but I'm more like the, the fiction, the fiction writing instructor that I believe in encouraging talent um, and not, you know, slapping it, slapping it down. You know, creative writing is something that you can't actually teach. You can teach craft, you can teach technique, but you really can't teach someone how to write. And you cannot predict when you meet someone as a teenager or an undergraduate, a young adult, you cannot predict their literary career or scholarly career will ever look like you know and sometimes you bet on the wrong horse so I'm very much aware of that and I'm aware that you know the courses you take as an undergrad the creative writing workshops or the literature courses maybe they don't sink in at that moment but four or five years later you know they might click in and the person who was in your class who didn't seem to have very much talent or who was really just seeming to write a lot of cliches all of a sudden that person spends four or five years becoming deeply engrossed in literature or having life experiences and they look at the world a different way and it starts to reflect in their writing and you have mm. to give all of your students a chance to become the kind of writer that they are going to become and there's no way you can know that um, when they're undergraduates or even when they are graduate students because they are yeah. being, you know forced to learn with boundaries and you have to let them get to a, a situation where they can move the boundaries and constraints and see where their writing takes them. Yeah. Uh, you know, the creative life is, it's, it's really challenging. And you were, you know, you, you made your life as an artist, as a writer uh, in, in, in some of the ways that you've described here, what was, what did you find to be like the most difficult aspect of making that, you know, your claim to that identity as, as an author? What did, what did you have to do? What did you have to overcome? Um, well, I had to first overcome poverty, which is one of the reasons that I mm-hmm. you know, thought writing was something I could do. And that, you know, for instance, the focusing on film, like wouldn't necessarily work, right? Like, you could be poor and you can be a writer. All you need to start with is a spiral notebook and a pen or a, a pencil. Um, so like at Stanford, there were plenty of opportunities um, that I was able to create for myself. That instructor that we just talked about, he had this big, thick tome called the Writer's Digest Manual. And it, it listed like all of the agents and all of the story, all of the magazines and journals that accepted submissions. Um, and at so this was this was 1996, and the book cost 39.99. And at that point in time, that was very expensive for me to purchase because it wasn't a book that I could, you know, use my scholarship money, you know, for. And I already had four or five jobs on campus, so I couldn't buy the book to get the information that I needed. I went to his office hours every week. Um, and I sat on the floor and I copied that book out, wow. you know, every page. That book was more than 600 pages. And it took the whole quarter for me to copy all of that information out so I could have a copy of that book. So that was the first hurdle, you know, realizing that because of a, you know, economic background, you may not have the ease of access to certain opportunities that other people have, but it doesn't mean that you cannot find alternative ways which is why it works so great to be a fiction writer because it's basically just revision, right? Finding another way to change the story, finding another way to get the information that you need. The hmm. biggest constraint now, of course, is time, yes. right? Um, because I'm not a full-time writer. Most, most writers are 
are not. I'm in a very fortunate position to basically be getting paid to do the thing that I love to do and to talk about the thing that I always want to talk about. Um, but that means that I pretty much have to wait for the summer and for winter breaks mm -hmm. um, to write. So, you know, I use my trusty spiral notebook um, and I carry it around all semester long or anytime I'm flying somewhere to give a reading or taking a train and I handwrite as much as I can uh, through the semester. Like I hear a piece of dialogue or I think of an image. And then when I have uninterrupted time during a winter break or a summer, I just type it all up and I just binge write and I get as much done um, as mm -hmm. I can. And, you know, that I, I, I wish I had more time to write, but it's not a complaint that I get to be in a university and teach because you don't want to live in a cave and write. You want to mm -hmm. talk to people. You want to in, engage with people. You want to interact. You want to feel and see people's stories around you. You want to be in the world. You uh, have to be, right? Or, you or, do. Or do you? I, like Emily Dickinson was famously not. Uh, but you, I, I'm curious to know how your work affects the people in your world. Let me, let me uh, pause here for a moment, remind listeners, this is Work in Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. This is Stu Friedman speaking right now, and I'm talking today with Amina Gautier, who is an award-winning writer, teaches at the University of Miami, and is the author of, um, um, among other short story collections, Now We Will Be Happy. Um, how do people respond to your work? And I'm, let, me, let me start with your family, because uh, clearly, you know, a, a, a major source of uh, inspiration uh, is your your family life in uh, in now we will be happy for sure. And I assume in other work, how has your family responded to your your writing and how has that affected your your future writing? Well, um, my mother is my biggest fan. I know that's a cliche to, to say that. Um, but she's also she's also my biggest fan because she's the only person who's actually read every single thing I've written. I've, I force her to read uh, a draft when I think it's done and to look for typos. Um, uh -huh. But don't worry, I, I feed her really well um, <laughs> to, to, to thank her. Um, as far as the rest of my family goes, um, well, my aunt in, in Puerto Rico is very supportive, but most of my family doesn't read my work and, you know, is, is not interested, right? They think when you say you're a writer or, or you have a book, they're wanting to hear that you have some sort of $2 million book deal, um, you know, or that you want to pull it to prize. And if you haven't, they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. You're not really a writer. So they're completely uh, not phased and, and, and not interested uh, at all, wow. which is fine. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, the other part of the question is how other people respond to the work. People well, no, let's stay with your family, family for that... a minute. Hang on. Okay. Uh, so um, you say it's fine. And so so you don't have like uh, a risk of people reading themselves in, you know, as characters in your work and and becoming, you know, well, I don't know, questioning, you know, your interpretation of who they are and how they are rep might be represented in your in your fiction. That that doesn't happen. Um, it doesn't happen because they don't read my work. But even if they did read my work, thankfully, I'm a fiction writer and I don't write um, nonfiction. You know, like my real life inspires all of my stories, but none of my stories are autobiographical. You know, so there's no character in now we will be happy who is you know like a, a family member you know I do the, the first story in a collection Aguanile you know it does it is about a girl who's you know Afro Puerto Rican going to Puerto Rico to visit her her grandfather you know and I've spent many summers visiting my grandfather we never went to a Hector Laveau uh concert or or anything like what happens um in the story so you know it's, it's not him um let me ask about that relationship, though, and and how you, you can you know the the story kind of leads to this uh, uh, expression of of love and connection through the music. Was that something that was a part of your life with him or with other family members? Like you know the 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 inheritance of that that form of music, that history of music. 
Um, not really. He, he and I have have been mostly a, very estranged for a large part of uh, my life. He's no longer um, alive. I started learning about salsa music when I came here to grad school at, at Penn, and I was living in um, in U City, and I was right across the street from the University City Arts League, and they were. Uh, offering a salsa dance class so I took it and I just fell in love with it that I used to go down to Brazil's like every Friday and Saturday night and salsa dance and um this is back when uh the five spot was still open o- over on Bank Street mm-hmm. and I was there on Wednesday and I just became like this salsetta it gave me something to talk about with my grandfather and he you know he sent me um some music but it was something um that I became interested in as more of as an adult um okay there that's, were other sorry no no that that's amazing and i'm so glad to know that because what what you created in that story and you know what it what it reveals to the reader about you know how music can connect you to your soul and to your history is is just beautiful i want to make sure that we we get to hear you read some of your work uh, Amina, so I, I'd like to get, I mean, there's more I want to know about how you became a writer and what it means to you now. And I'm going to ask you, I hope before we're done, what advice you give to young writers or old, you know, people who are seeking uh, a creative life that might be somehow stuck in another kind of life. But let's go to the conclusion of Now We Will Be Happy. I'm, I'd like to ask you, if you're willing, to read the last couple paragraphs, starting with um, with her eyes closed. Do you have that available to you? And can you do that? Yes, I now, can. Can you just g- give us however you want to frame it in terms of like what, what we are encountering here as we, as we reach this text? Okay. Uh, now We Will Be Happy is the title story in the collection. It is told an alternating point of view from the point of view of Rosa, who is a married woman in an abusive relationship who is having an affair with um, an older gentleman named Yauba. Um, so it goes from her point of view to his point of view. And this story, this, this paragraph, these last few paragraphs des- describe the first time they decide to actually get closer and and intimate and really acknowledge that they are having an affair. Rosa is a New Yorkan. She's born in New York of Puerto Rican descent, but she does not speak Spanish. She has not been to Puerto Rico. And Yauba is a native-born Puerto Rican from the island. Um, So a lot of their interactions have to deal with food and cultural um, exchange. Okay. Thank you. That's wonderful. Please read. With her eyes closed, she can see what Yalba describes. The warm tub water is the Atlantic Ocean lapping at the edge of the beach. The bare bathroom light bulb is the warm sun in the sky beating down upon her. Yalba joins her in the water, making it rise to the rim of the tub as he settles in behind her. One of us should stop us, she says, though she knows now it is too late. Not me, Yaoba says. Not me, says Rosa. Her back to his chest, they lie back in the water, bathing in Yaoba's makeshift ocean. Saying nothing, he washes each of her fingers and each web of skin in between. He lifts her arms and washes the dark marks tenderly. He touches her without lewdness, makes her forget all about Pedro, makes her know that bruises can heal. The bruises fall from her the way rain, gathered in the large folds of banana leaves, pours off in a rush when it has become too heavy to hold. When he is done and she is cleaner than she has ever been, he tells her the meanings of all the words she has ever wanted to know. I'm tearing up as I hear you read that. It's so powerful. It's so moving. It's so beautiful. And, you know, one of the things that I thought about as I was reading that Amina, was that, um, this is probably wrong, so please correct me, that that the words she wanted to know, there's a sense, especially in the first, in the first few pieces in this collection of, you know, trying to understand the world, the secrets that you didn't know, that you couldn't hear as your parents, as one's parents were speaking and, you know, in the other room, 
there's a whole world of knowledge that she's not connected to. And somehow the words, the words um, bring her that knowledge, bring her that sense of connection. It's as though words are uh, love. So I, w- I, I, I was thinking of that as a way to understand you as an author, um, that somehow words were, you know, the, the secret for you. Is what I'm saying making any sense to you, Amina? What do you think? Well, I think if you try to uncover my secrets on the radio that, you know, if I tell you, I had to kill you. But <laughs> okay. um, sorry, this is not a threat to Stu's life on radio. All right, no, nobody takes it that way. Um, I, I do. I think that, you know, words have been the sort of essence of life for me. They have been what was responsible for me out of my neighborhood, out of poverty, out of getting me to where I want to be. Um, words are responsible for shattering things, um, possibly words on contracts, like being <laughs> moved out of apartments, and then are responsible for healing and, 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 and reconciling and, and drawing people together. So I absolutely believe um, in the power of, of words. Yeah. And how we can all have them available to us to create connection, to see into the other and to, and to feel and express love as Yauba and Rosa do here. Um, so who off the top of your head, uh, we've only got about five more minutes here, unfortunately, Who's, who's been most influential to you as a writer? That's really hard um, because I like individual stories and don't necessarily, you know, um, I, I kind of cherry pick, but I would say a craft book has been most, in, most influential to me. So John Gardner's The Art of Fiction. So like not necessarily his short stories, but The Art of Fiction, when he talks about the jobs and the responsibilities that writers have um, and how they should not cut corners. He says, I'm I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but in the art of fiction, he says something along the lines of writers have to write as if someone is despairing, as if someone is Mm. a ledge and and, and ready to jump and and your words are what it's going to take to to pull them back, that you have to not lie, not cut corners, um, and that you have to write with integrity and that's been my most influential, that's been my largest guiding force as I moved forward as a, a writer. I read that, um, you know, when I was 18 or so, 19. So how now do you think of your, your purpose as a writer? Um, I think that that is one of my, my, my purposes, that one of the things I'm particularly doing is trying to show African-Americans and Afro-Latinos um, in quotidian situations, to show them just in everyday situations that are not uh, hyper pathologized, um, mm-hmm. that that is one of my one of my goals and one of my purposes. You know, to not write with stereotypes, to sort of challenge the stereotypes about um, these marginalized about marginalized peoples, and to write characters with honor and integrity, to not make fun of them. Um, you know, for, for any sort of gain or to, you know, I don't know, to, to not cut corners. That's basically the main thing that I'm trying to do every time I write a story. I want the readers to believe that that character really could have existed, that they really could have lived and that they really could get into that character's mindset and not condemn them, not praise them, not like them, but just understand. Mm. So in in a in a sentence or two how would you describe your relationship with your readers now um i hope it's a positive one in which we influence each other i think that i hope that my writing gives my readers permission um to challenge stereotypes and i hope that it gives them permission to um what do I want to say to not follow formulas and rules if those rules are hindering their creativity and what the readers give back to me, you know, is they remind me that I am writing for myself, but I'm not only writing for myself. 
Is, is that, is, I'm sorry, finish, sorry. Finish, finish that sentence. I'm sorry to interrupt. So I just have to think carefully about what I say and, and how I say it, because as we both said, words have such power. So, so in just the last 30 seconds here, what advice do you, what's the main piece of advice? What's the main thing that people need to know if they are wanting to be writers? Dude, 30 seconds, really? Yep, yep, that's all we got. <laughs> um, trust yourself, trust the process, turn your phone off when you're writing, do not allow yourself to be um, to be distracted. Um, okay, that's like 30 seconds. <laughs> that's good. Uh, one more. Oh, and don't tell people what you're working on until you finish it. That's the main thing. That's my oh. advice. Oh, so I was just about to ask you, what are you working on now? But I'm not going to ask you that, Amina. I'm instead going to ask, uh, how can how can people learn more about your work if they 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 are intrigued and want to want to dive in? Where should they start and where should they go? Um, they can start with the first collection, At Risk, um, which is about the time period we discussed. Um, I have an author Facebook page, so it's you know Facebook.com with some backslashes, and then Amina Gautier Wordsmith. I also have a regular web page, which is, you know, HTTP, the colon, the S and all that stuff, Amina Gautier dot WordPress. Um, they can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Amina Gautier. I also have a faculty page at the University of Miami. So they can follow any of those sites for uh, updated information to keep track of stories that come out online that they can link to and, and read, and then stories that they can find in journals. That's G-A-U-T-I-E-R. Amina Gautier, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Stu. Well, all right. And thank you for joining us, listening in. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question, something you heard on the show you want to ask me about, just write to me. I'm Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Go to totalleadership.org to find eventually free podcast versions of this and other episodes. Thanks, Patty Hall and our engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. Thank you so much for listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.